Hi everyone, this is James Fisher, the Editor-in-Chief of the Miramichi Reader, and welcome to Episode 17 of Season 2 of the TMR Podcast. Coming up in this podcast, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but we're concentrating again on fall releases, fall 2022 releases. We have an interview with Lynette Richards, who's just produced a graphic novel for the young adult audience, and it has a bit of history and a bit of a mystery to it. Uh, we're going to be hearing from a poet, James Pollock, regarding his new collection of poetry, Durable Goods. Uh, he'll introduce himself and also he'll be reading a selection of his poems from that volume. And we'll be hearing from Andy Tolson, who's just uh, produced a book, a novel, entitled Noisemaker. It's uh, a very interesting sounding book too, especially for those who are into music and uh, the punk music scene of the uh, late 70s and early 80s in England. So please stick around for what I think is a very intriguing episode of the TMR podcast. So welcome Lynette Richards to the TMR podcast. It's great to have you here to talk about your new uh, graphic novel. I guess that's how we would refer to it. Would we? Yes, uh, it's um, um, published by uh, Conundrum Press's new young adult line of literary graphic novels. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Uh, Sal uh, Soler. 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 Sal Soler. It's a tongue twister a bit. Yeah. Uh, sent me a PDF of Call Me Bill. And uh, I was uh, immediately interested because I love uh, history. Uh, I love ships too, and anything to do with the history of ships. And also it has a, a bit of a, it tries to solve a bit of a mystery, I guess, around a certain um, person who perished in the crash, uh, not crash, but I guess the capsizing or. Uh, yes, it wrecked. It actually wrecked. seriously yes. grounded on underground rocks on the coast yes. of Prospect, Nova Scotia. And this was in the late 1800s, 1898, was it? Uh, 1873. Oh, okay. Sorry, 1873. Yeah. Um, so um, there's, a, there's a bit of a mystery about one of the bodies that washed up on shore, over 500 perished, I believe. You're, yeah. you're the expert on this. I shouldn't be guessing at numbers. But uh, <laughs> there's a, there's an interesting thing about one of the bodies that washed up on shore. And this is how uh, you managed to work this in very nicely to your story. So I'll go ahead and let you talk about your book. Well, uh, yes. Yeah. So I, I sort of used two parallel stories that both needed to be kind of uncovered and reintroduced to the general public. And the first story, of course, is that of the wreck of the SS Atlantic, which has been overshadowed by the wreck of the Titanic, which was another White Star Line steamship. Um, uh, The other story is about uh, what the newspapers reported as the female sailor. So uh, 500 people did perish. That's half the people that were on the ship. In fact, more than half perished. And that includes every single woman and child except one boy. So the only survivors were men. And when the, uh, after the rescue, which was a heroic undertaking to rescue the remaining people, and um, that's worth talking about, because um, it's a come from away story, the way these uh, few local people uh, just 
launched out in the middle of the night and saved who they could. Um, but they also had to do the recovery. And when they were recovering all those bodies, which if you can try and imagine what 500 dead bodies looks like, they piled them on a, a little rocky island called Ryan's Island. And the newspapers called that pile of corpses, the hill of death. Hmm. And then they had to bury them. And if you know Nova Scotia's shore around mm. here at all, it's solid granite. Like there is very little soil. Mm -hmm. So uh, the bodies were shipped just inland a little bit to the two little villages that were on this peninsula. That would be Lower Prospect and Terence Bay. And in each of those churchyards, a Catholic and, an, and a Protestant, they were able to dig deep enough holes to make two mass graves. And those exist there to this day. So when they were preparing the bodies for burial, they discovered that one of the sailors from the ship was a woman all along dressed as a man. Mm. And uh, so just to uh, back up a little bit, were, were they all identified that the survivors, not the survivors, but the bodies, were they identified? Absolutely not. Mm. A lot of the bodies would have been, um, well, first they, you know, horrifically brutalized by being knocked against the rocks mm. and the waves um they were drowned so you know whatever happens to bodies after that a lot of the bodies were trapped in the ship for a period of time mm -hmm. and and the ship sank shortly after uh, like the day after it tipped over uh, and the salvagers from the white star line exploded it to get at the cargo and there were still, you know, hundreds of people, hundreds of bodies inside. So no, they certainly were not all identified. And the, the ship's uh, logs that identify the passengers are inconsistent, as most records from 1873 are. Mm. So um, there were also, they know there were some stowaways on the ship. So their names wouldn't have even been entered anywhere in the first place. Wow. So there was a lot of anonymity. There are a lot of an anonymous people in those graves. Okay, and and so this uh, person, which you call Bill in your yeah. story, uh, is one of those. Uh, but you think you can identify her in some way, right? Am I correct? Well, I think I've gotten it to like ninety-three and three quarters percent. <laughs> but uh, the reason for that is because uh, the newspapers reported on this widely. And there were, um, it was quite, quite an anomaly, like a news breaking story to find a female in a male role back mm -hmm. then. There certainly were some, we know of some that went West dressed as, you know, frontiersmen and some that were in the civil war, for example, in the mm -hmm. same era and some went to sea. But there was a, a story uh, written by a reporter from the New York Tribune just prior to the shipwreck of the SS Atlantic. And this reporter uh, was reporting on the very same thing, a woman who was kind of discovered to be, you know, um, who she was or who he was, um, and uh, was being sent home on the SS Victoria of the anchor line. And so this reporter was on board and interviewed this person. Mm -hmm. And that article exists 
And the reporter's name was Ralph Keeler, and he was a contemporary of Mark Twain. He hung out with all those American mm-hmm. Americana writers at the time, and he was a syndicated writer. Uh, so the, his story appeared in many newspapers. And based on that and the timing, I'm speculating that this person in Nova Scotia is the same person. Mm. Yes, very interesting. Like to go through the the, the graphic novel and read the story. And you did all the artwork as well, correct? I did. Yes, it's amazing artwork. And you chose to, uh, there's, uh, you have some extensive notes at the back of the, at the back of the book about why you chose uh, to, to illustrate all in black and white rather than yeah. colors. Yeah. So the, the particular story of this sailor, you'll hear me uh, doing my best to manage Uh, the sort of new evolving understanding of gender that we have nowadays. Um, Because, um, of course, I would refer to this sailor uh, according to their wishes if they could be asked. Right. But because it was 1873, um, we only have historical records to deal with. So I myself am um, a lesbian. So I'm a bit of a gender nonconformer myself. And I spent my life trying to get into the trades, male-dominated fields, mm-hmm. and I succeeded mm-hmm. to an extent. So I kind of empathized with the story of this person, and I thought it, that it was kind of about um, non-binary situations. And so I wanted to use black and water to mix together to make a variety of shades of gray and to blur lines and just uh, kind of play in the middle. The middle is so much vaster than the two ends, black and white. So the medium itself, I'm hoping, somewhat expresses the the reality of gender as we know it today. Mm-hmm. And it sort of fits the time period as well, I guess. It, you, you it know, does. Pho- photographs from that time are you know black and white or sepia tone. And, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, as um, a point of historical fact, newspapers and other printing um, um, media, if there were any others, couldn't actually print photographs yet. Right. right. They could only print engravings. So mm-hmm. there are some early photographs because cameras were kind of a new and exciting thing. And there were rubberneckers that took their massive big cameras down to the wreck site. Mm-hmm. And we have incredibly you know, a a dozen photos from the wreck site, but they couldn't actually be printed in any newspapers. So engravings were all that were made and there were some gorgeous, gorgeous engravings of the time. And so just to just to tie in some uh, work that you actually do. um, So you live in the area where this um, actually happened, right? That's right. It's right at the end of my road. Okay, wow. And did have you always lived there? No, um, I've lived here now going on 10 years. Okay. Yeah. And are you Nova Scotian? Like a... Not originally. Okay. I came from Ontario uh, 10 years ago. Okay. I'm an Ontario Terrierian too. <laughs> yeah. I've been here in Miramichi 15 years now. But So when you, when you moved to that area, did you know this story? I did not. Okay. All right. I've always wanted to make a graphic novel. And I, uh, most of my life, I thought it was going to be memoir type based on, you know, my experiences, of mm-hmm. course, memoir. 
Um, but when I got here and found these mass graves in this little museum, yeah, I was smitten, also a history lover, so I was completely amazed. And then to find this paragraph in the uh, uh, Halifax Morning Chronicle about the female sailor just uh, icing on the cake for me, yeah. I knew this was a story that needed to be told. Yeah, nice. It's it's. You know, there's so many little things that happen and or they've happened in the past and kind of gotten forgotten. And uh, like you said, it was kind of suppressed uh, a bit by the White Star Line and and then overshadowed by the Titanic disaster. And two uh, world wars. Yes. A lot happens in 150 years. Yes. And then the Civil War was going on at the time. Too, or No, it's just over. It was just it, over. It, that. uh, yeah, that's correct. It was just yeah. over um so yeah a lot of a lot of things happening in the world at that time for sure mm -hmm. um so you moved there you discovered this story um there's a museum there you can tell us a bit more about that yeah so the ss atlantic uh um let's just go backwards so there are two mass graves uh and the one in the anglican church cemetery uh the rocks the rocky shore and the soil on there was washing out to sea and bones were being mm. revealed and some of the bones were washing out to sea. So uh, in about 19, I think it was 1980, some of the uh, community members then um, realized they needed to intervene. So for a second time, they went in and sort of took care of these corpses. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they reinforced the shore, the uh, obelisk, that is there to mark the mass grave was completely overgrown with brambles. So they cleared it and they put up a, a boardwalk and a gazebo. Mm. And the Anglican church at the time um, gave them permission to put up a building that would house artifacts and uh, be mm -hmm. an interpretation center. So that exists there to, to be visited uh, May to October. Nice. So are there uh, any kind of um, any type of artifacts that were, re were recovered from the ship at all? Oh, yes, yes. It's amazing what has come forward. There are the, the obvious things you would expect from divers. So pieces of pottery and mm -hmm. uh, some jewelry. Uh, there, um, there's a shoe, which is, to me, quite poignant. Mm -hmm. um, really, they're very personal little items. And then uh, we also have the clock from the captain's quarters, oh. which clearly has never touched salt water. So it was taken from the ship before it sank huh. and, and just kept somewhere. And then we have the quarterboard, which I don't know if you know what that is. It's a, it's a decorative piece of carved wood that says SS Atlantic in Victorian scroll work. Oh, yeah. And it's about 10 feet long. And uh, we just got it in the museum about two years ago, and it had been hanging on somebody's wall mm. for the last couple of generations. Wow. Yeah, and it's an amazing condition. Yeah, so I guess little things like this are, are out there and people yeah. can... Uh... We have a White Star Line flag that was donated by, um, I think, like a, a descendant of one of the um, the sailors and they swear it was from the ss atlantic but that can't be proved right you know it's that age though yes 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 wow this is a great story and so the this graphic novel uh it's not it's coming out september my yeah uh i think mid-september is the publishing date and okay. it can be pre-ordered 
Mm -hmm. And is there electronic version too available? Or I've been wondering that myself. I don't fully know. Okay. I know for sure it'll be out in uh, in paper. And a graphic novel is a different kind of book. It's kind of nice to hold it in your hands yes. and, and go mm -hmm. back and forth and and look at it closely. Um, but I know you can get a digital version if you want to do a review, such as you yourself. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, reading it. And uh, I don't know, it was just it was just a nice experience to get a little bit of history, find out about something I did not know about at all. Yeah. And, uh, and consider the life of what this person, uh, we'll call her Bill or Maggie, whichever, whichever she preferred, mm. he, she preferred, but um, how they went undetected for so long, like she was mm -hmm. on the she was a sailor for about three years. Is that right? Or so? Uh, so some of the stories of her yeah. say, yeah. And how how she managed to conceal it is, is amazing. But I mean, she got into some in, in your in your novel, she gets into some scraps and stands up for herself. And, and yeah, uh, that's correct. And, and that is and entirely smokes and drinks on, too. But. So in the book, just to sort of go back to the 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 gender uh, issue in the book, when um, when the protagonist is dressed and presenting themselves to the world as a, as a male, I refer to them as Bill. Mm -hmm. And then the opposite, when they are dressed as a female and presenting that way, I refer to them as Maggie. Right. And that's just because I don't know what they would have asked me to refer to them as. And so right. I'm referring to them as they present. Right. Um, hopefully that's respectful. And um, I guess one more thing I wondered if I could just mention about uh, this whole story mm -hmm. is ahead. that, uh, you know, we talk about shipwrecks and um, what we really want to talk about here in Nova Scotia, especially around this community and this uh, little uh, interpretation center is the experience of the uh, rescuers and the people, the villagers that responded. Mm -hmm. So we're really trying to shift the story from, you know, the big ship crashing to the experience of the local people. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah, what a, you know, what a time and place. It was April 1st, I believe, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, not a, certainly not a warm time of year. And, no, uh, and a rocky coast like that, and on on the Atlantic Ocean is never three in never, the morning. Yeah, yeah, and so, no electricity, uh, no electric lights, and things like that. No, so. and it they spent many hours. There were fourteen local men that went out in four boats over and over and over and over, and they um, they couldn't pull the boats up to where the the survivors were struggling because the survivors were panicking. And we we would capsize their boats, so they had to throw ropes in and then drag one person at a time in. And so for hours, they they brought back boatloads of these traumatized, injured people who would have already known that, you know, their families were dead. Yeah. And uh, and then they went into the arms of the women of the community, which is a story again that hasn't been told. So we're mm. trying to tell that next year and and forward in oh, good. the, in the good. museum good yeah, yeah. It'd be, i'd be certainly interested to learn more about it yeah um, is it, are you thinking of another graphic novel a continuation or 
it sure is tempting because yeah. there are a lot of stories that really need to be told properly. Yeah. When things sort of drift into the background, into the mists of memory and the past, all you're left with are little myth, little mythologies, you know. But uh, as the stories have sort of come back to the surface through our, um, you know, Bob Chalk, the historian's work and the upcoming 150th anniversary, I see so many entry points to this story that are mm. fascinating and pointing <laughs> to today. Yeah, great. Well, uh, I thank you for chatting with uh, me today, Lynette. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot more about uh, the uh, this event that's uh, happened there uh, so many years ago and the possible survivors and uh, also the, the gender identity issue mm. that goes along with it. Uh, very fascinating. So we'll look for uh, your your graphic novel, Call Me Bill, from Conundrum Press, and um, out next month in September. And I'm sure it'll be available in all the usual spots. That's what I hear. Online <laughs> and otherwise. Yes, that's right. And uh, so what about the hours of the museum there? Is it, or is it open? Uh, it is a seasonal volunteer run right. museum. Okay. And uh, so they have a website, the SS Atlantic. Uh, okay. So you can go and look it up. But the hours are typically nine in the morning till five. Okay. Um, there are a couple of summer students there in the summer and the rest of the time. It's just whoever is able and willing to greet people. Okay. So I'll post a link to that uh, along with on the, uh, on the notes with the podcast here. Thank you. And uh, I'm sure your book will be available there, perhaps. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. All right. So I wish you much success with this book and uh, nice chatting with you again. Thank you for uh, taking the time to appear on the TMR podcast and uh, we'll uh, be following you closely. Thank you very much, James. I really appreciate your interest. I'm James Pollock, a Canadian poet and critic, probably best known as the author of Sailing to Babylon, which was published by Abel Muse Press in 2012. That book was a finalist for the Griffin Poetry Prize and the Governor General's Literary Award in Poetry, and it was also awarded an Outstanding Achievement Award in Poetry by the Wisconsin Library Association. My poems have been published in the Paris Review, Agni, Plume, The Walrus, and many other journals. And in the last couple of years, they've been awarded the Manchester Poetry Prize, the Magma Editor's Prize, and the Guy Owen Prize from Southern Poetry Review. My other books are You Are Here, Essays on the Art of Poetry in Canada, which was published by the Porcupine's Quill in 2012, and a volume that I edited called The Essential Daryl Hine, which was published also by the Porcupine's Quill in 2015. Uh, it's a book of poems in the Essential Poets series. I grew up in southern Ontario, and I now live with my wife and son in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm also a professor of English at Loris College in Iowa. My new book of poems, Durable Goods, is about to be published by Vehicule Press in Montreal in September 2022, a book of poems about everyday technology, everything from microwaves to kettles, sprinklers to umbrellas. I conjure the essential spirit of each object. So 
the poems reveal the tools and appliances that surround us as both sympathetic reflections of ourselves, our fear, love, rage, hope, and grief, and as strange beings with inner lives of their own. Read together, I'd say these poems immerse us in an imagined world, and the idea is that this world can give us the power to see our own world in a new way. There are also poems that are full of wordplay and wit and humor. My hope is that people will read them aloud. In writing this book, I was inspired by John Keats's ideal of the chameleon poet who enters into things in imagination and takes part in their being. There's a great tradition of uh, what in German is called Dingedichte, that is, thing poems, that includes not only Keats, but Eduard Morica, Rainer Maria Rilke, Francis Ponge in France, Marianne Moore, D.H. Lawrence, Eric Ormsby, and others. Although, whereas the traditional thing poem is usually about a plant or an animal or a work of art, my poems are about tools and appliances and machines, as I say. I think of these poems as combining romantic imagination with neoclassical wit, or perhaps not quite a romantic imagination so much as a modernist one. I was reading Heidegger's essay, The Question Concerning Technology, when I wrote these poems, which is about the danger of technology and the saving power of poetry. Then again, Heidegger is thinking of Friedrich Herderlin, the, the German romantic poet, in that essay, so perhaps romantic after all. Several of the poems in Durable Goods are about machines that are sympathetic, although others are about tools and machines that are terrifying, or at least uncanny. It's true to call these poems animistic, although wry. Who would be interested in reading Durable Goods? Readers who like imaginative poetry that's also witty and full of wordplay and sound effects, too. In other words, poems that reward being read aloud. These are short poems. One of the poets who wrote a blurb on the back of my book compared these poems to the work of the British poet Tony Harrison and the American poet James Merrill. So if this sounds like your kind of thing, I hope you'll check out Durable Goods. So that was James Pollock introducing himself and as well as his book, Durable Goods, which will be available from Vehicle uh, Press this coming September, next month actually, in a few weeks. And now Mr. Pollock's going to read seven poems from his book, Durable Goods. Ceiling Fan Seen from below, a white five-petal flower. In fact, an artist whose medium is air, who combs it with these pale palette knives, hour on hour, stirring the room, spinning with care to keep this slow whirlpool in circulation. It gives you the chills, like an erotic spouse. If you ramp up the speed of its rotation, it starts to imagine it could lift the house. 
spectacles. Arms folded on the desk. They're skeptical, aloof. They have their own way of seeing things that is slightly off. Not magical, exactly, but somehow mind-bending in the way they turn the world, if not to their will, at least away from the world's will, if the world may be said to have one, true visions achieved through speculative skill. Barometer It knows how much pressure you've been under, that you could use a change of atmosphere. Your seasonal depressions, rain and thunder, are easier to predict than they appear. But how long can you bear this cloudy heap, under this weather, this black gloom, this despair? Will it crush you in your fitful sleep, before the rising pressure clears the air? Mouse trap. This begins with an epigraph from Hamlet. Tis a knavish piece of work, but what of that? It's going to snap, but for now it just kills time, high-strung, tongue-tied, sitting tight among floor crumbs. How can it not give you the chills? A little peanut butter on its tongue. Whole divisions deployed all over town, assigned to be assassins of the mouse. The coiled spring that brings the hammer down has one thing to say. Death is in the house. Briefcase This devoted vehicle to which you're married brims with what it tries to convey, the tenor of which is that it gets carried, when it can't contain itself, away. Of all bags, it's the best to be left holding, an outward carry-all of inward space. Often it carries the day and its unfolding out of everything that, oddly, is the case. Screw Spiral staircase, or ramp, rather, as in a tiny parking garage, or the shoots of the scarlet runner. Such things as spin a helix, one of nature's absolutes, into the matrix of the universe. Turn the self-locking vortex by the head with your torquing driver. Such tight verse holds all things together by a thread. saw. The panel saw on its hook like a rag of map, its blade an obtuse triangle of plane, its serrated edge a sierra, scrap of landscape lush with spirits of the slain. It's skilled at long division and, like the law, separates what is good from what is true. That's the Cartesian wisdom of this old saw, for whom one divided by one is two. 
now we're going to hear from Andy Tolson, the author of Noisemaker, uh, which book was reviewed by Mala Rye uh, back on August the 7th. And uh, she concluded that Tolson tells a tale of mostly drama with a bit of comedy delivered with a driving bass heartbeat and loud cymbal crashes of tension. So let's hear from the author himself. Hi, I'm Andy Tolson. I'm a writer based in Annapolis, Royal, Nova Scotia, and my debut novel, Noisemaker, is out September 2022 with Moosehouse Publications. Noisemaker is the story of 17-year-old drummer Billy Stamp. Inspired by the sonic anarchy of The Clash and The Stranglers, Billy flees his chaotic home life in Halifax to drum his way to superstardom in punk rock era London, England. But Billy is woefully unprepared for a city populated with tattooed skinheads and violent thugs and rock wannabes and, worst of all, universal indifference to his talent. As he stumbles his way through the music scene playing punk clubs and dank pubs on a quest for the perfect groove, he's forced to choose sides in the battle between art and commerce. I'm a drummer who moved to London when I was 18 and ended up spending most of the 1980s there. When I wanted to write about my formative years, I approach the story as a novel rather than restricting it to a memoir. I want readers to root for Billy as he navigates a world of beer-soaked stages and egos and eccentrics, but also as he experiences the transformational power of music. Funny and frenetic, Noisemaker has been described as Catcher in the Rye meets the Sex Pistols. It's part ghost story, part fictionalized memoir, and a love letter to a time in music history when thrashing guitars, pounding drums, and the three-minute pop song ruled the world. You can listen to a soundtrack to the novel and read more about Noisemaker at andytolson.com. Oh, I wish to thank Lynette Richards, James Pollock, Andrew Tolson for being part of the, this episode of the TMR podcast. The Miramichi Reader website, its weekly newsletter, and this podcast is made possible by our subscribing members through our Patreon account. To become a member, please visit our Patreon page. For less than the price of a good cup of coffee per month, you can support what we do at the Miramichi Reader. And I'll provide a link on the main podcast page. So our Patreon page is patreon.com forward slash the Miramichi Reader. Finally, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave a five-star rating, which assists others in finding us in the vast podcast universe. Thank you very much, and I certainly appreciate you taking the time to do so. So that's all for episode 17 of season two of the TMR podcast. Until next time, I'm James Fisher, editor-in-chief, and I thank you once again for listening. The Miramichi Reader, Canada's best regarded source for the finest and new literary releases. Visit miramichireader.ca.